0: We've been looking in recent months at the books of First and Second Kings, and last week we saw a storm of God's judgment gathering over Israel. And I'm using the word judgment to refer to the destruction of evil. It doesn't just mean that God pronounces a verdict against evil, it means he actually takes action to destroy it. When I talk about God's judgment, that's what I mean. The verdict was pronounced by God long ago in these books. And now comes the action that backs up the verdict. Last week we saw God preparing to bring judgment. His instruments of judgment were put in place, the people who would bring it. Hazael became king of Aram, and Jehu was anointed king of Israel. Years before this, God had told the prophet Elijah these men would deliver God's judgment on Israel's sin. Specifically, the sin God is going to judge is the sin that was initiated and then promoted by King Ahab, by Jezebel, his wife, and by their family. When we read in these books about Ahab's house, it means his family, not the place where he lived. And now Ahab's house has led Israel over the years deep into evil. And now the time has come when Ahab's house is going to be destroyed. And God's human instruments of judgment are in place. Hazael and Jehu have been installed. Judgment is ready to fall. But last week we got some insight into God's perspective on this situation. Before telling us about the arrival of his judgment, 2 Kings told us about God's motivation in all this. We saw that his faithful people are his priority. The judgment that's coming is coming as God's vengeance on those who have persecuted and killed his people. God said, I will avenge the blood of my servants. God loves his people with a fierce avenging love and so those who trample his people will be punished and at the same time we saw last week God takes no pleasure in bringing judgment even as his holiness and righteousness demands that he punish evil even as his love for his people moves him to avenge their blood yet God takes no pleasure in bringing judgment We saw that last week as God's representative, Elisha, wept at the prospect of what is coming. And we saw from the rest of scripture, Elisha's emotion reflects the emotion of God himself. As he contemplates judgment. It must come. How could a good God ignore evil? How could he act like it doesn't matter? We expect good people to oppose evil. Why would we expect any less of a good God? How could He carelessly tolerate evil? Judgment must come, yet God takes no pleasure in the prospect of it. Last week, we were given those insights into God's perspective, and we also had the scene set for what we're going to read today. We were told there was a battle. At a place called Ramoth-Gilead, Ahab's son, Jorab, king of Israel, joined with Ahab's grandson, Ahaziah, king of Judah, and they fought against Hazael, the new king of Aaron. Joram was wounded, and he retreated to a place called Jezreel. Ahaziah went with him, and they left their armies to carry on the battle at Ramoth-Gilead. And our passage ended last week by introducing us to Jehu. He was the commander of Israel's army. So he's a fighting man. But we saw him being anointed as the new king of Israel. That took place on Elisha's order, which was in fulfillment of God's order. And Jehu was commissioned to destroy the house of Ahab. And now we're going to pick up at Second Kings chapter 9, verse 14. And we'll read right through to the end of chapter 10. If you're using one of the green church Bibles, that's page 377. And one of the larger print Bibles, 581. Chapter 9, verse 14. So Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi conspired against Joram. Now Joram and all Israel had been defending Ramoth Gilead against Hazael, king of Aram. But King Joram had returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds the Arameans had inflicted on him in the battle with Hazael, king of Aram. Jehu said, If you desire to make me king, don't let anyone slip out of the city and go and tell the news in Jezreel. Then he got into his chariot and rode to Jezreel because Joram was resting there and Ahaziah king of Judah had gone down to see him when the lookout standing on the tower in Jezreel saw Jehu's troops approaching he called out I see some troops coming get a horseman Joram ordered send him to meet them and ask do you come in peace the horseman rode off to meet Jehu and said this is what the king says do you come in peace what have you to do with peace Jehu replied, fall in behind me. The lookout reported, the messenger has reached them, but he isn't coming back. So the king sent out a second horseman. When he came to them, he said, this is what the king says. Do you come in peace? Jehu replied, what do you have to do with peace? Fall in behind me. The lookout reported, he has reached them, but he isn't coming back either. The driving is like that of Jehu, son of Nimshi. He drives like a maniac. Hitch up my chariot, Joram ordered. And when it was hitched up, Joram king of Israel and Ahaziah king of Judah rode out each in his own chariot to meet Jehu. They met him at the plot of ground that had belonged to Naboth, the Jezreelite. When Joram saw Jehu, he asked, have you come in peace, Jehu? How can there be peace, Jehu replied, as long as all the idolatry and witchcraft of your mother Jezebel abound. Joram turned about and fled, calling out to Ahaziah, Treachery Ahaziah! Then Jehu drew his bow and shot Joram between the shoulders. The arrow pierced his heart and he slumped down in his chariot. Jehu said to Bidkar, his chariot officer, Pick him up and throw him on the field that belonged to Naboth the Jezreelite. Remember how you and I were riding together in chariots behind Ahab, his father, when the Lord spoke this prophecy against him? Yesterday I saw the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, and I will surely make you pay for it on this plot of ground, declares the Lord. Now then, pick him up and throw him in that plot in accordance with the word of the Lord. When Ahaziah, king of Judah, saw what had happened, he fled up the road to Beth Hagan. Jehu chased him, shouting, Kill him too! They wounded him in his chariot on the way up to Ger near Ublim. But he escaped to Megiddo and died there. His servants took him by chariot to Jerusalem and buried him with his his, his ancestors in his tomb in the city of David. In the eleventh year of Joram, son of Ahab, Ahaziah became king of Judah. Then... Jehu went to Jezreel. When Jezebel heard about it, she put on eye makeup, arranged her hair, and looked out of a window. As Jehu entered the gate, she asked, Have you come in peace, you Zimri, you murderer of your master? He looked up at the window and called out, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked down at him. Throw her down, Jehu said. So they threw her down. And some of her blood spattered the wall and the horses as they trampled her underfoot. Jehu went in and ate and drank. Take care of that cursed woman, he said, and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. But when they went out to bury her, they found nothing except her skull, her feet, and her hands. They went back and told Jehu, who said... This is the word of the Lord, that he spoke through his prophet Elijah the Tishbite. On the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs will devour Jezebel's flesh. Jezebel's body will be like dung on the ground in the plot at Jezreel, so that no one will be able to say, this is Jezebel. Now there were in Samaria 70 sons of the house of Ahab. So Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria, to the officials of Jezreel, to the elders, and to the guardians of Ahab's children. He said, you have your master's sons with you, and you have chariots and horses, a fortified city, and weapons. Now, as soon as this letter reaches you, choose the best and most worthy of your master's sons, and set him on his father's throne. Then fight for your master's house. But they were terrified and said, if two kings could not resist him, how can we? So the palace administrator, the city governor, the elders and the guardians sent this message to Jehu. We are your servants and we will do anything you say. We will not appoint anyone as king. You do whatever you think best. Then Jehu wrote them a second letter saying, if you are on my side and will obey me, take the heads of your master's sons And come to me in Jezreel by this time tomorrow. Now the royal princes, 70 of them, were with the leading men of the city who were bringing them up. When the letter arrived, these men took the princes and slaughtered all 70 of them. They put their heads in baskets and sent them to Jehu in Jezreel. When the messenger arrived, he told Jehu, They have brought the heads of the princes. Then Jehu ordered, put them in two piles at the entrance of the city gate until morning. The next morning Jehu went out, he stood before all the people and said, You are innocent. It was I who conspired against my master and killed him. But who killed all these? Know then that not a word the Lord has spoken against the house of Ahab will feel. The Lord has done what he announced through his prophet Elijah. So Jehu killed everyone in Jezreel who remained of the house of Ahab, as well as all his chief men, his close friends, and his priests, leaving him no survivor. Jehu then set out and went towards Samaria. At Beth-Ekhet of the shepherds, he met some relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and asked, Who are you? They said, We are relatives of Ahaziah, and we have come down to greet the families of the king and of the queen mother. Take them alive, he ordered. So they took them alive and slaughtered them by the well of beth had 42 of them. He left no survivor. After he left there, he came upon Jehonadab, son of Rechab, who was on his way to meet him. Jehu greeted him and said, Are you in accord with me as I am with you? I am, Jehonadab answered. If so, said Jehu, give me your hand. So he did, and Jehu helped him up into his chariot. Jehu said, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. Then he made him ride in his chariot. When Jehu came to Samaria, he killed all who were left there of Ahab's family. He destroyed them, according to the word of the Lord spoken to Elijah. Then Jehu brought all the people together and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little. Jehu will serve him much. Now, summon all the prophets of Baal, all his servants and all his priests. See that no one is missing because I'm going to hold a great sacrifice for Baal. Anyone who fails to come will no longer live. But Jehu was acting deceptively in order to destroy the servants of Baal. Jehu said, Call an assembly in honor of Baal. So they proclaimed it. Then he sent word throughout Israel, and all the servants of Beal came, not one stayed away. They cried it into the temple of Baal until it was full from one end to the other. And Jehu said to the keeper of the wardrobe, bring robes for all the servants of Beal. So he brought out robes for them. And then Jehu and Jehonadab son of Rechab went into the temple of Beal. Jehu said to the servants of Beal, look around. And see that no one who serves the Lord is here with you. Only servants of Baal. So they went in to make sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had posted 80 men outside with this warning. If one of you lets any of the men I am placing in your hands escape, it will be your life for his life. As soon as Jehu had finished making the burnt offering, he ordered the guards and officers, go in and kill them. Let no one escape. So they cut them down with the sword. The guards and officers threw the bodies out and then entered the inner shrine of the temple of Baal. They brought the sacred stone out of the temple of Baal and burned it. They demolished the sacred stone of Baal and tore down the temple of Baal. And people have used it for a latrine to this day. So Jehu destroyed Baal worship in Israel. However... He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam son of Nabat. Which he had caused Israel to commit. The worship of the golden calves at Bethel and Dan. The Lord said to Jehu. Because you have done well. In accomplishing what is right in my eyes. And have done to the house of Ahab. All I had in mind to do. Your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel. To the fourth generation. Yet. Jehu was not careful to keep the law of the Lord, of the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, which he had caused Israel to commit. In those days, the Lord began to reduce the size of Israel. Hezael overpowered the Israelites throughout their territory east of the Jordan. In all the land of Gilead, the region of Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh, from a by the Arnon Gorge through Gilead to Bashan. As for the other events of Jehu's reign, all he did and all his achievements, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Jehu rested with his ancestors and was buried in Samaria, and Jehoahaz his son succeeded him as king. The time that Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was 28 years. This is God's word. There's a lot in this passage. There's a lot of blood in this passage. But as a whole, it is making three basic points for us. First of all, in chapter 9, verses 14 to 29, only God's judgment can bring true peace. There's a key word in this section that shows us the significance of what's going on. That key word is peace. It occurs seven times in verses 14 to 29. So let's see how the word is used. As the passage opens, Jehu has just been anointed. He's also been commissioned. And he heads straight then from Ramoth Gilead, where the battle is, to Jezreel, where the two kings are. Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah. The lookout at Jezreel tells Joram, I can see some troops coming. Now, they're not close enough for him to figure out who it is exactly. So Joram says in verse 17, get a horseman, send him out to meet them and ask, do you come in peace? And the word that's translated peace is shalom. It's a very significant word. Here, it simply means what the NIV says. Do you come in peace or have you come to fight? But in the Bible as a whole, the word shalom refers to a much more comprehensive well-being. It means not just the absence of war, but positively it refers to wholeness, security, blessedness. Shalom means that things are the way they should be. It's important to know that because in this passage, there's a play on words going on. When Joram's messengers use the word shalom, they just mean, have you come to fight? But when Jehu uses the word, he means it in the more comprehensive sense. Things being the way they should be. So when the first messenger rides out to meet Jehu and says, do you come in peace? He's thinking, peace or war? But when Jehu replies in verse 18, what do you have to do with peace falling behind me? He's thinking, what do you have to do with wholeness and blessedness, you servant of Joram? Back in the city, the lookout tells the king the messenger isn't coming back. So the king sends another messenger and the same thing happens. Exactly the same thing. But by now they're close enough for the lookout to realize Who it is that's coming their way. In verse 20. The driving is like the driving of Jehu son of Nimshi. He drives like a maniac. Having been to the man's go-karting a few months ago. I could say the same about some of you. But not about myself. Being close to last on the day. But obviously Jehu's way of handling a chariot. Was legendary in Israel. And once King Joram knows who it is, he rides out to meet Jehu. Ahaziah goes with him. Remember, neither of these men know that Jehu has just been anointed the new king of Israel. As far as they're concerned, he's still a commander of Joram's army. He's a friend. He's a paid member of staff. So they're expecting, as they ride out, to receive a report on how the battle is going at Ramoth Gilead look at verse 21 of chapter 9 hitch up my chariot Joram ordered and when it was hitched up Joram king of Israel and Ahaziah king of Judah rode out each in his own chariot to meet Jehu they met him at the plot of ground that had belonged to Naboth the Jezreelite when Joram saw Jehu he said have you come in peace Jehu now what Joram means is do you have good news about the battle Is everything okay? But Jehu's mind is on the much more comprehensive sense of shalom. And he replies in verse 22, How can there be peace? How can there be true well-being, true wholeness and security? So long as all the idolatry and witchcraft of your mother Jezebel abound. Jehu has the big picture in mind. He knows there can be no genuine shalom until evil has been dealt with. How could things possibly be the way they should be until evil has been removed from the picture? And he mentions specifically the evils of false worship. He uses the words idolatry and witchcraft. But the author of Kings here reminds us what false worship always leads to. Look at verse 21 again. He tells us Jehu confronts Joram and Ahaziah at a very specific place the plot of land that belonged to Naboth the Jezreelite. Now, some years before this, King Ahab the idolater had murdered Naboth just to get this little piece of land. When we looked at that passage in 1 Kings, we said that though. Ahab and Jezebel supposedly worshipped Baal, they were actually worshipping their own desires and ambitions. Baal was not a living god. He had no power. He had no authority. So although Ahab and Jezebel bowed down to statues of Baal, they were essentially ruled by their own desires and ambitions. They were not under Baal's authority. Baal was a lump of stone. Ahab and Jezebel made their own rules and because they were powerful people they were able to just take what they wanted from who they wanted. They trampled in anyone who got in their way. Another way of putting that is to say that idolatry leads to injustice. When human beings turn away from the living God they end up turning away from justice and fairness too. And what happened to Naboth was a prime example of that. He had no power to resist the king. And so the king just took what he wanted. And it's no accident that Jehu meets these two kings on this spot. He meets them in what used to be Naboth's vineyard, and it just adds all the more significance to his question. How can there be well-being? How can there be wholeness and security so long as Israel is full of idolatry. Not only does that steal worship from the true God, it leads to all sorts of injustice against human beings as well. People steal and kill just to get what they want because they are their own authorities, their own masters. If there's going to be true shalom, true blessedness, all of that evil has to be destroyed. I think sometimes we have a very naive view of what it takes for God to put things right in the world. When someone has cancer, what's the only way for things to be put right in their body? It's for the cancer to be either burnt out or cut out, isn't it? The only way to wholeness in that person's body is via a whole lot of destruction in their body. And it's the same when it comes to well-being and wholeness for our world. Before that can happen, evil needs to be either burnt out or cut out. And that means a whole lot of destruction. Destruction. It means those who cling to evil and perpetrate evil have to be destroyed. Only God's judgment can bring true peace. True peace can only come on the other side of God's judgment. Well, in verses 23 to 29, God's judgment falls on Joram and Ahaziah. Both of those men belonged to Ahab's house. Both of them followed in his footsteps, and both of them were destroyed. And all of that happens before Jehu has even got inside the city of Jezreel. And when he does go inside, we discover that God's judgment forces us to choose a side. In the last section, the key word was Peace. This section centers on a key question. Whose side are you on? The words vary each time, but the same basic question comes up four times. In chapter 9, verse 30, through to chapter 10, verse 17. In verse 30, we're told Jehu goes into the city of Jezreel, and he gets a very interesting reaction from Queen Jezebel, who's in the palace there. Verse 30. Then Jehu went to Jezreel. When Jezebel heard about it, in other words, when she heard that her son and grandson had just been killed by Jehu, she put on eye makeup, arranged her hair, and looked out of a window. As Jehu entered the gate, she asked, Have you come in peace, you Zimri, you murderer of your master? Zimri made an appearance in 1 Kings. It was a very, very brief appearance. He was an official under Elah, king of Israel, years before this. Zimri assassinated Elah, and he reigned over Israel for seven days. His reign was so short because the army of Israel turned against him immediately. So when Jezebel dolls herself up and calls Jehu Zimri, This is an act of total brazen defiance from Jezebel. She's raising two fingers to Jehu and the God Jehu serves. She doesn't humble herself. She doesn't ask for mercy. She gathers herself up to the height of her pride and her pomp. Puts on her makeup, fixes her hair. And she shouts down to Jehu, You're nothing but a seven-day wonder. You're just another flash in the pan, just another flash in the pan like Zimri was. Jezebel is saying and assuming, my supporters will squash you like they squashed Zimri a few years ago. This lady is confident she can outlast and she can overcome God's judgment. She has boldly chosen her side. What about the people around her? Well, they're also going to have to choose a side. Look at verse 32. He looked up. That's Jehu. Jehu looked up at the window and called out, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked down at him. Throw her down, Jehu said. So they threw her down. And some of her blood spattered the wall and the horses as they trampled her underfoot. Now at this time, most queens were surrounded by eunuchs in the palace. They were men who had been castrated. And that was done, that was a policy to make sure the king would have no worries about his staff messing with his wife. But in the case of these eunuchs, well they do more than mess with Jezebel, they tip her out the window. And the following verses give the gory details of what became of her body. All of it in accordance with what God had promised would happen. Jezebel chose the wrong side. She was foolish to be so confident in the face of God's judgment. She was foolish to think that her powerful position would keep her safe. And like every proud enemy of God, she ended up humiliated and destroyed. Eaten by scavenger dogs as she lay dead on the street. And as we move into chapter 10, we're given three more examples showing that God's judgment forces us to choose a side. At the beginning of chapter 10, we learn there are 70 sons of Ahab in the city of Samaria. Now those were not all from Jezebel. Ahab would have had plenty of other wives. And chapter 10, verse 1 says, Now there were in Samaria 70 sons of the house of Ahab. So Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria, to the officials of Jezreel, or that could be the rulers of the city, to the elders and to the guardians of Ahab's children. He said, You have your master's sons with you, and you have chariots and horses, a fortified city and weapons. Now, as soon as this letter reaches you, Choose the best and most worthy of your master's sons and set him on his father's throne. Then fight for your master's house. This is a test. Jehu is asking the leaders of the city to choose a side. And they do. Verse 4. Then Jehu wrote them, sorry, verse 4, but they were terrified when they got his letter and said, If two kings could not resist him, how can we? So the palace administrator, the city governor, the elders and the guardians sent this message to Jehu. We are your servants and we will do anything you say. We will not appoint anyone as king. You do whatever you think best. Then Jehu wrote them a second letter saying, if you are on my side and will obey me, take the heads of your master's sons and come to me in Jezreel by this time tomorrow. Now there is a bit of ambiguity there. The word head is ambiguous in the way it is in English. The word head in Hebrew and in English can mean this thing on top of your neck. Or it can mean leader, as in the head of the secret service. So Jehu may have been saying, bring me 70 of these things that sit on your neck. Or maybe he meant, bring me the prominent sons of Ahab. Or he may have been intentionally ambiguous. In any case, what Jehu actually gets is 70 literal heads. And verse 10 reminds us this is the judgment God promised on Ahab's house. The officials in Samaria choose a side, the same side as the eunuchs chose in Jezreel. Verse 12. Jehu then set out and went towards Samaria. At Beth Echad of the shepherds, he met some relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and asked, who are you? They said, we are relatives of Ahaziah, and we have come down to greet the families of the king and of the queen mother. Literally, we have come down for peace with the families of the king and of the queen mother. So these people from Judah in the south have come to throw in their lot with Ahab's family. That is where their sympathy lies. And because of that, they receive judgment. Jehu kills them. Then look at verse 15. After he left there, he came upon Jehonadab, son of Rechab, who was on his way to meet him. Jehu greeted him and said, Are you in accord with me as I am with you? I am, Jehonadab answered. If so, said Jehu, give me your hand. So he did, and Jehu helped him up into the chariot. Jehu said, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. Then he made him ride in his chariot. What Jehu actually asks Jehonadab is, is your heart right? Is it the same as my heart? So he's not asking Jehonadab, is your heart for me? He's asking, is your heart for the Lord? as my heart is for the Lord. That's why when Jehonadab says yes, Jehu then says, well then come and see my zeal for the Lord. Jezebel, the eunuchs, the officials in Samaria, the relatives of Ahaziah, Jehonadab, all of them had to choose a side. In the face of God's judgment, none of them could stay neutral. God's judgment divides the world in two. There is no third way. We are either with the living God or we're against him. We either receive him as our God and king and live for him, or we put something else in God's place and we live for that instead. the new testament says no one can serve two masters you and i might think we can avoid serving any master at all but we can't all of us bow to some authority it might be some personal ambition that masters us and controls us and drives us it might be an addiction It might be our attachment to our possessions. It might be the gathering up and protecting of wealth. Whatever it is, we all have a master. And the Bible says you can't have more than one. When it comes down to the wire, all of us have one thing that calls the shots in our life, one thing that determines our priorities, and our decisions. And that one thing is either the living God or it's something else. Those are the only relevant details. If it's something else, it's not really significant what that something else is. What matters is if we're not living for God, we're taking a stand for false worship. And whether we like to hear this or not, that means we are choosing to defy God. It means ultimately we're siding with the evil and justice that flow from defiance of God. And in the end, we will receive God's judgment. Now, I realize as we read this passage, we have all kinds of questions about Jehu what kind of a man was he really what about the way he did things we'll get to those in a moment but those questions must not distract us from this the judgment we see in this passage is a small localized taste of the worldwide judgment that is still to come we're left in no doubt at all this judgment is from God That's emphasized over and over again. All of this is according to the word of the Lord spoken years before to the prophet Elijah. This is God doing what he promised to do. Dealing with human rebellion and idolatry and evil. This is God working to bring true shalom. True wholeness. And one day the Bible says God will do it on a worldwide level. Today, in God's mercy, you and I have the opportunity to pick our side. We might not have that opportunity tomorrow. None of us know what's coming even later today. But we have this chance to turn from our God's substitutes and turn to the God who welcomes and forgives false worshippers like us. When Jezebel shouted at Jehu from the palace window, she thought in her high position she was safe and secure in her defiance of God. But in fact, she only had a few minutes left. Don't make the mistake that she made. I said we mustn't let our questions about Jehu distract us from the challenge this passage has for us. But now that we've considered that challenge, let's get to those questions. Chapter 10, verses 18 to 27, describe another major act of judgment that's carried out by Jehu. We've seen already in Kings, the very heart of Ahab and Jezebel's evil was their introduction of Baal worship into Israel. They led the nation in devotion to that pathetic substitute for the living God. And so the climax of Jehu's work is to eradicate Baal worship from Israel. Jehu, we've seen, is a master of ambiguity. We saw that with the heads in Samaria. And we see it again here. In verse 18, he announces Ahab served Baal a little, Jehu will serve him much. Now summon all the prophets of Baal, all his servants, and all his priests. See that no one is missing. Because I'm going to hold a great sacrifice for Baal. Anyone who fails to come will no longer live. But Jehu was acting deceptively in order to destroy the servants of Baal. A great sacrifice for Baal could also be translated a great slaughter for Baal. But all the bigwigs of Baal worship take Jehu's words positively when they get the message. It's going to be a big worship service for Baal. They get all their special robes so that no worshippers of the Lord accidentally get caught up in there. And then Jehu has them all killed. verse 27 says, that Jehu's men demolished the sacred stone of Baal and tore down the temple of Baal. The people have used it for a latrine, a toilet to this day. So, Jehu destroyed Baal worship in Israel. Jehu has carried out a comprehensive judgment on the religion of Baal. That is what God had commissioned him to do. So what are we to make of Jehu? What's the final verdict? Well, look closely at verses 29, sorry, 28 to 31. And as I read those again, notice how these verses alternate like a ball bouncing back and forth on a tennis court. Verse 28. So Jehu destroyed Baal worship in Israel. Positive. Verse 29. However, he did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam son of Nabat, which he had caused Israel to commit. The worship of the golden calves at Bethel and Dan. Negative. Verse 30, the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in accomplishing what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab all I had in mind to do, your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. Positive. Verse 31, yet Jehu was not careful to keep the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, which he had caused Israel to commit. Negative. So, what's the verdict on Jehu? The verdict is, he is an imperfect instrument of God's judgment. His service to God was tainted. It was imperfect. Now we're left in no doubt... The judgment Jehu carried out was what God had in mind to do. But time showed Jehu's own heart was not quite as zealous for the Lord as he had claimed. And so who knows how much selfish ambition there was mixed up in all of his service for God. And so the judgment that Jehu brought was imperfect. Yes, it removed one major obstacle to shalom, Ahab's house and its Baal worship. But Jehu's judgment didn't bring perfect security and blessedness by any means. Because it didn't deal with all the other evil. Not by a long way. And so in the final verses of our passage, we read how God begins to bring more judgment on a still rebellious Israel. Now he brings it through Hazael the Aramean. We're told Hazael starts lopping off territory from Israel. Israel's getting smaller and smaller. Jehu was an imperfect instrument of judgment. And so his work was imperfect and incomplete. One writer says, God has no sterilized instruments. All of them. flawed. all of them except one because the new testament tells us there is only one perfect instrument of god's judgment and so there is only one hope for true peace second kings has left us in no doubt when jehu brought judgment on evil he did what was right in god's eyes And in that sense, Jehu was a pale, ever so pale, foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says Jesus will bring perfect and complete destruction of evil in this world. And by doing that, Jesus will bring perfect shalom. He will make things as they are meant to be. The end of the Bible pictures Jesus as a warrior king. It pictures him coming to destroy evil for good. And that means destroying those who refuse to join him. How else could there ever be true peace? True peace will never come so long as evil is left alone. But surely you and I realize, if evil is going to be finally and fully dealt with, then we are all in big trouble. Because our hearts are no more careful to follow the Lord's than Jehu's heart was. Our zeal for the Lord is as weak as dishwater most of the time. Our love for things that are not God rules our hearts more often than we'd like to admit. If Jesus is going to come and destroy evil, and if he's going to do it perfectly and completely, then how on earth could any of us possibly survive that destruction? Well, here's the good news. The good news is that this Jesus, who is coming again to bring judgment, he's been here before. And the first time he came, he came to receive judgment. Not to bring it, but to receive it. And he did that voluntarily by going to the cross. The Bible says that on the cross, Jesus became sin. He took on himself the evil and rebellion of the whole world. Then he received God's undiluted judgment on all that evil. On the cross, Jesus Christ was destroyed by God's wrath. And he did all that so you and I could escape destruction. So we could go untouched By God's judgment. If you're ever caught in a forest fire, the only safe place to be is where the fire has already burnt. The fire will not pass over that ground again. And the only safe place for you and me is where the fire of God's judgment has already burnt. Jesus Christ is coming back to bring true peace. And to do that, he will burn up all the evil in this world and all those tainted with evil. The only way to escape that burning is to turn now to the one who was burnt for us. When we put our trust in him and accept him as our king, we will never be touched by God's judgment. We'll still be standing when it's all over. We will get to enjoy God's eternal shalom perfect well being, perfect wholeness, perfect security forever. In a moment, we're going to gather together around this table. And when we do that, we're going to celebrate the person and work of Jesus Christ that we've just been talking about. But before we do that, let's declare all that Jesus means to us. All that he gives us. We're going to do that as we sing, I come by the blood.